0: And green earth medicinals. If you want to learn more about our Curious About Cannabis events, go to cacpodcast.com slash events. And if your company would like to become an event sponsor, visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn more. Hey, everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So, continuing our new episodes for 2022. I'm super excited to be sitting down with our last guest of 2021. I'm here with IPM specialist and purveyor of knowledge of all things pests and pathogens. I'm here with Matthew Gates. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast again.
1: I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. Me too. I mean, we only began to scratch the surface in our last conversation and I have a feeling we have about 99 more to go. Um, So uh, we'll go ahead and jump in here if anyone needs an introduction to matthew go check out um uh, let's see this will be three episodes prior to this one and you can get a little intro but we're just gonna go ahead and jump in um so at this time of year you know we're recording this in april um cultivators especially outdoor cultivators are you know um getting in the motions and preparing for the season Uh, The frosts are just, you know, kind of starting to, uh, depending on where you are, uh, starting to become less and less frequent. So it seems like a good time to talk about, you know, pests and pathogens that you have on your mind for this year that you've been kind of following or you think uh, folks should kind of um, be looking out for. And then also, I want to use this as an opportunity, you know, our last conversation we talked primarily just around the concept of IPM and kind of philosophy around IPM and everything. But we didn't really just kind of introduce people to basic pests and pathogens that you might expect to find with cannabis. Um, So I guess we'll start there and just kind of spin out and see where things lead from there. So um, what critters have got your attention this year?
1: Well, it's the same ones that most people deal with around this time. And uh, specifically in cannabis, it's just always important to reiterate that um, cannabis has some pests that are sort of specialized for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of the plant, a lot of the plant's worst contenders are things that a lot of other agriculturalists had to deal with. And fortunately, that means there's a lot of information about them, just not necessarily on cannabis. So like your two spots, spider mite is incredibly common, uh, various thrip species, yeah. Uh, Recently, uh, people have been talking a lot about onion thrips Mm. being found in in cannabis. Uh, Personally, I have found western flower thrips, and I know other people who have identified western flower thrips in cannabis as well, which is also, uh, you know, those two are some of the biggest, most common uh, thrip species that people encounter in crops variously because they're massive generalists. Um, uh, The cannabis aphid. Would be more active around this time for a lot of people uh, or starting to be that way especially if you're starting to take cuttings in mm-hmm. um, and that sort of a thing the rice root aphid, of course is also like this and the hemp russet mite um, is getting a little bit more active um, i think but a lot of these cases are because people and grow growers are moving plant material around uh, this isn't always because the insects are just ambiently getting active in the environment. Um, a lot of it is actually just from uh, production facilities, nurseries, and uh, just people uh, who are friends with each other sharing uh, plant material that could potentially be colonized.
0: Well, and that's a really good point to bring up, and it might be worthwhile kind of expanding on that a little bit. So, as people are, you know, they're they're taking cuttings and making clones, and then especially if they're I mean, if they're growing indoors, then they could be at any point of the cycle, you know, at this this time of year. But um, as people are getting these young plants prepared, do you find that there are certain uh, pests and pathogens that you have to be more wary of in, you know, uh, the early part of the life cycle of the cannabis plant versus the later parts? And how can cultivators kind of um, monitor those vectors that could be introducing these things and, um, you know, what should they be mindful of as they're setting up their grows? And like you said, moving around and, you know, possibly visiting other people's grows and moving back and forth that sort of thing. Um, how can they, uh, try to limit those vectors as much as possible?
1: The number one thing would probably be hygiene. Yeah. Um, especially now, right. Sort of a spring cleaning kind of, Mindset, Uh, you know, if you didn't clean out your autumnal or winter grow space, um, whether that's outdoors or indoors, you know, um, you know, getting rid of plants that might not serve the function that you're trying to have, um, you know, culling weedy plants that might not be uh, useful, particularly because they can be a safe haven for various pests, which we'll probably get into, um, as well as just simply having good um, germination procedures. For your plants, whether you're sowing directly into soil, or you're growing in some sort of other substrate or media, um, you know, being careful with uh, how you go about this, just uh, simply trying to be um, sterile, or in some cases, if you're trying to inoculate various microbes, um, you know, trying to do that in a way that doesn't necessarily introduce other things that you don't want, because you want those to be there first, Um And you want those to sort of create this sort of bio barrier. Um, In fact, if that is actually what those microbes do, but there are many out there on the market that people can can get or even collect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that that harkens back to our first conversation of all of the nuances of even trying to use microbes and everything for inoculations. It's very complicated. And I think something that gets um, overlooked a lot is the potential to introduce particularly like. viral pathogens and things to the plant um at germination like you're saying um you know there are some interesting studies that show uh relationships between plants and microbes depending on how they are you know whether they're <clears throat> germinated in soil or planted directly in soil i mean or if they are germinated first and then introduced to soil later um you know from the very beginning the plant is interacting with microbes interacting with viruses and things. And those things are forming this complex, you know, ecology uh, with the plant. Um, So I'm glad you brought that up that it goes all the way to germination. It's not just once you've got your little plants, but even at the point of thinking about cracking the seeds.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, many people have Encounter things like damping off and Mm -hmm. fusarium, pythium. Um, I had a conversation with somebody who is particularly convinced that pretty much everyone has fusarium, no matter who he talks to. um, You know, he just always he gets them tested by a pathology lab. Pathology lab comes in and it's got fusarium or pythium, pretty much always in his encounter. Now, that doesn't mean that the plant will grow poorly or die, even. And, and that sort of thing. and that was actually a conversation that um, was really interesting to have uh, because I think that it was a bit of a, a white whale <laughs> for this person. I have my own white whales, but um, uh, ostensibly, um, even if it's ever present and other microbes can be this way as well, um, and they're path- pathogenic. Even if it might be having some sort of sublethal negative effect, uh, there are people who are growing pretty quality plants regardless. Right. Uh, that's not to say that it's wrong or bad, or that people shouldn't seek to get rid of them, um, or that they should seek to only accept them. But you know, just uh, it's a good context cue, I think, because um, again, these interactions are complex, and just because you detect something yeah. doesn't mean that it is having. Um, you know, that's going to be having this massively negative effect. And certainly this is kind of the definition of resistance in plants, really. Yep. It's not the immunity from the pathogen, but it's usually the ability to mitigate its presence to a great degree.
0: Right. Yeah. What are the, the plants ability to essentially tolerate? Um, I mean, <laughs> cause there's so many different organisms that are living on and inside of these plants. And so um, yeah, I think that's a a great nuance to highlight that it's not a matter of what's there, but you know, really looking at how it's affecting the plant. And sometimes those effects are very negligible. This also harkens back to you know, this is ringing bells inside of my uh, you know sort of analytical mind thinking about working in you know testing labs. You know, people get so freaked out if they see any detections of anything in their products and you always have to have context just because you detect something doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. What's the amount, how's it, you know, how's it interacting with other things, how someone ingesting this product, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that all goes into this idea of, is it potentially harmful or not? Um, and yeah, that applies here too. If you go looking for these microorganisms, um, You'll find a lot of stuff that might freak you out if you just look at the name and you know you're vaguely familiar you know um a lot of people you know uh freak out about the idea of you know like aspergillus niger or something you know being present but it's like you're gonna find that in some amount <laughs> everywhere you look um that doesn't necessarily mean you've got a black mold problem um, so yeah really great nuance and this also provides us a doorway to spin off into something I really wanted to talk about, which is these, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, these molecular cascades that are involved within these relationships between pests and plants. Um, and I guess I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to, I want to talk about something else that's going to tie into that. Um, which is you? You mentioned uh, that there are pests that are specific to cannabis, and pests that are extreme generalists. And for the most part, most people are dealing with these kind of generalist pests. Um, first of all, what are you mentioned the um, the cannabis aphid? Um, what are some of these pests that you found to be more or less specific to cannabis? And have you noticed? that there are pests that seem to target cannabis and its relatives, Um, you know, like hops. Are there certain pests that seem to mostly just affect hops and cannabis um, or just cannabis? And then from there, I'd really like to talk about kind of the implications in the kind of genomic and molecular machinery that's kind of behind uh, some of those dynamics.
1: Well, you know, Jason, this is one of the reasons why I'm very... um excited to talk to you specifically, because in fact, in some cases, I think you might even understand this better than me or have some insight into some of these, uh, sort of chemical ecological interactions. And I I really like this. Um, so yeah. So like, for example, this isn't quite exactly what you're saying, but I find this fascinating. So most people know that cannabis and hops are closely related. Um, but a lot of people don't know that they are the most closely related of the cannabaceae. Right. So there's, there's several cannabaceae species or genera, I should mm-hmm. say, like Perisponia and Trema. Um, and, uh, of course we have to talk about, uh, there's aphanantha mm-hmm. or at least that's how I pronounce it. Um, you know, sort of the, maybe the basal genus that a lot of these, um, other genera kind of, uh, evolved from. So, uh, Hops and cannabis in certain research has shown to be, uh, they, they split off from a common ancestor, essentially. And, um, you know, the details about that is, of course, fuzzy, yeah. but um, that's a really important thing to consider because there's this aphid out there called Forodon cannabis. That's the cannabis aphid, it's from the Forodon genus. But there's also a hop aphid called Forodon humuli, mm-hmm. and they are related phylogenetically and hop its actually the damson hop aphid. So it's one of those aphids that has actually an alternate host. So it feeds on hops and then it feeds on prunus species. Hmm. So like almonds and things like that. And there is a uh, population of aphids that have this sort of like dual lifestyle where they have a certain, they have like a primary host and a secondary host, and they usually move between them seasonally. Um, but why is it that the cannabis aphid, which is ostensibly incredibly closely related, does not have, as far as we can tell, this alternate host, um you know, physiology yeah. and biology and ecology? Why is it that uh it is a specialist of cannabis only? And the damson hop aphid doesn't even feed on cannabis from whatever we can tell. And um only feeds on hops. You know, like you're saying, even though they descend from a common ancestor over the span of like maybe a few dozen millions of years, depending on which research report or phylogenetic report you're looking at, um, there's been some significant changes, of course. And you can even tell in the development of looking at a hops plant, looking at a cannabis plant, obviously there are differences here. But um, physiologically, that is what accounts for some of that. I think, and and they have, especially aphids, are very adept at specializing on a few hosts and doing mm-hmm. a really great job of um, uh, of that sort of adaptation. And in fact, sometimes I like to think of them as like micro bugs because aphids they asexually reproduce. Generally speaking, they produce basically virtually clones of themselves, and they're born pregnant. Um, yeah. So they're kind of like these. You know, bacteria bugs. Yeah, they, they really are. Yeah. yeah,
0: right.
1: <laughs> a lot of those advantages are also conferred to aphids.
0: Well, and it's you know interesting too to think about um, the possible relationship between how these two aphids have evolved in um, the differences between maybe the things that they secrete, uh, the way that these plants respond to. Um, you know, being uh, fed on by these these uh, these aphids, you know, hops and cannabis. I, once they s- separated from, and a lot of this is inferred, you know, from pollen research and and other things like that. So we always have to kind of put that asterisk in there. But you know, hops and cannabis, from like a wild perspective, grow in very different environments. Um, in that you you know expect the you know, hops to grow in more uh, kind of forested environments and things like that, whereas you expect the wild cannabis to grow in more, you know, open areas and, um, and that sort of thing. And so I always like to think about the chemical ecology, you know, of what in in the plants kind of starting to specialize in those different types of environments after that split, you know, 20, 30 million years ago or whatever. Um, you know you would you would expect that that would start to drive changes in molecular biology um that would lead to these unique developments like we said we're talking about the time scales it's sometimes really hard to like put into context the time scales we're talking about but when you're talking about millions and millions of years you know that's a lot of time for plants to uh, develop uh adaptations to these different growing environments that over time are going to lead to changes in proteins that will be developed by these plants, or even the, you know, uh, machinery that these plants would have to produce different types of proteins and uh, signaling compounds and, you know, um, and that sort of thing. So it's, you know, in one sense, it seems weird that an aphid that feeds on hops wouldn't jump over to cannabis but then also when you take the evolutionary history into account it doesn't seem that weird like you could kind of see it going either way um because these plants when they were wild were just in very different environments uh over time
1: right no totally and um you know like uh there's a hop powdery mildew mm-hmm. that can colonize both um but not only can it colonize cannabis in some cases and hops, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, it can also colonize like raspberries, mm. for example. And those aren't even <laughs> yeah. closely related. So like, um, uh, are you familiar with the phrase uh, exaptation?
0: No, I'm not.
1: It's this idea basically that a trait, um, and it's kind of, I think it has some controversy because it's kind of what we're talking about here is like, You know, how do these things, how do these traits evolve and what you can call like, you know, a response to a stimulus or not. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if an organism like develops a horn, you know, and they use it for combat, for defense, maybe even not against other animals, but but animals of their own species, maybe in mating, you know, displays or something. But then they move to another location and it ends up being a really great weapon against things that aren't it um you know so it gets exaptated or maybe it gets used to like puncture tree trunks to you know get access to like sap or something to feed on so that's exaptation and so a trait that was that evolved for one sort of use or certain uses gets used for another thing and that happens all the time
0: yeah and and the sort of opposite of that in a way too that things that are adapted for one reason or another at one time, and then become totally useless, uh, Mm. down the road, but don't get selected out, you know, traits that maintain, but seem to serve no, um, evolutionary advantage anymore. Um, I think even humans are a good example of that. Um, to some degree, uh, there are quite a few of our body parts we don't seem to need anymore, but, um, you know we still keep them around um we are less hairy yeah yeah we are getting way less hairy um and yeah no it's it's really fascinating and i um i want to pick your brain a bit about you sent me some papers to kind of look over before this discussion, which I found super fascinating, and I'll be diving into them for probably a month or so after this, because there's a lot to unpack. But one of the papers was all about just what we're talking about of genomic research and what genomic research is starting to uncover about how these, you know, uh, insect host specific relationships uh, come about and what the consequences are for those relationships and everything. And so, uh, I mean, this will be a really wide open question, but um, in your mind, you know, as you're digesting all this information, um, what in this area is really um, getting you excited in terms of what we're learning from genomic research and um, how it's influencing these insect plant relationships?
1: I think that probably the primary thing is that, well, for one, it informs us and gives us the sort of mechanistic, um, physiological basis for why or how you could even say plant health works, right? Right. Like Mm -hmm. what what makes a plant resistant or immune, you know, anti-xenosis, xenobiosis, these sorts of functions of, um. Of like like very extreme severe uh, repellents in some cases. In other cases, um, it's not the case at all. And and like one of the things that we also learn and understand better is like how like you know for example, it makes intuitive sense that a plant uh, produces toxins and proteins and things that are defensive, right? Many people know this is secondary metabolism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then they have the primary metabolism that powers, you know, and the and the food source, the the sucrose and that that powers this. But um, just because you have defenses doesn't mean that they're the right tools for the job. Mm-hmm. I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. And um, you know, even for us, we might use an insecticidal compound that is. Uh, based on a natural compound, like um, like a pyrethrin right. product, for example, or whatever. And, um, you know, because these organisms have been exposed to it, wouldn't you know it, they're also able to develop resistances pretty robustly in some cases. Thrips, aphids, spider mites are um, very well known for having this capability. And um, the genes that will give them this capability uh you know you get upregulated or downregulated spider mite physiology is super complicated um and uh yeah you even get populations within a species that can be more or less adapted to certain pop certain plants even so like you know good luck there there's western flower thrips the species and then there's western flower thrips that are really good for tobacco yeah or they've yeah. they they Spider mites have been shown in in, uh, research that if you take a non-adapted strain that's maybe adapted to like bean, like green beans or whatever, and then you put it on a tomato plant, it only takes like 30
0: generations
1: for it to adapt. And that's a very small period of time. So you have to ask yourself, as a cannabis cultivator, um, with all the feral cannabis out there, the wild plants out there, the land-raised plants, and even the cultivated plants, how... um, how long have these plant insects been able to resist and develop these um, resistance characteristics to your favorite plant? It's a long time,
0: right? Yeah, and I mean, what's the uh, life cycle on a thrip and an aphid and that sort of thing? I mean, how,
1: like, maybe a few, like, maybe a month yeah, or so. Yeah,
0: yeah, so yeah, it doesn't take long to hit that that thirty generation mark, and and it makes you wonder too what the consequences are going to continue to be with you know we haven't gotten to the point yet where plants are able to readily cross state lines here in the United States. Um, of course, seeds are, and um, we're not quite to the point. Well, no, this isn't true. I mean, there is tons of exporting and importing across the world happening now, especially in the hemp market, um, and more and more every year. It makes you wonder what the uh, you know the consequences will be for pest pressure and and um, susceptibility, as can- the cannabis industry itself becomes more and more open and accepted, and you know, and its uh, commerce is happening so openly, and these plants are being distributed and shared and moved and grown everywhere, um, more so even more so than they are now, because I mean, they really are everywhere already. Um, it'll be interesting to see how. Pest change over time in relation to these plants. Um, and it also highlights why it's so important not to um, get caught up in kind of these pest control memes that sort of come about in the culture. Um, you know, that like, oh, you've got this pest, this is what you do. Like a very um, kind of prescriptive, Formula for dealing with with any pest, and these interactions are far more complex. I mean, I remember, I remember when, I mean, neem oil's been used for ages, but I remember there was a point um, when it seemed like all of a sudden all cannabis growers were using neem oil to to try to deal with pests. They, it was just became so popular. Um, and there, there are going to be more you know, situations like that uh, where people find, especially as they're looking for, quote unquote, natural pesticides um, to try to deal with pathogens. And to me, this, this highlights why people should be learning more about the ecology, learning more about these relationships, which highlights why integrated pest management is so important and why it's can be so challenging and why. Every grow environment is unique in terms of those dynamics that someone will be dealing with, um, and like you're saying, there are these subpopulations of pests. So just knowing the species that you're dealing with isn't necessarily enough because you may be dealing with some subpopulation of a species that's uniquely adapted to, you know, the plants that you're growing in this environment that you're growing them with the treatments that you're doing, you know, that sort of thing and so i guess for people listening i just want to point that out that you know if you come across these kind of memes that often circulate on social media and everything about what to do with pests kind of take them with a grain of salt because um it's obvious that these interactions are far more complex uh, than we often give them credit for and we tend to pretend like these uh creatures don't adapt like they that they're static or something uh, which couldn't be further from the truth
1: the plants adapt but then the pests somehow oh, well they're the bad guys so we don't give them the credence <laughs> right. that they deserve yeah no but it's all life yep. you know it's all kind of happening I'll, I'll give two quick examples one uh when i worked in a gerbera cut flowers so gerbera daisies lilies and roses mm-hmm. and things um we uh i i collected hundreds of puperia, of leaf miner flies mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, they're little flies that fly around and they puncture mm-hmm. um, leaves and they put their eggs in the leaves. And then the larva lives between the margin of the leaf. Um, we, I collected them. I sent them off for testing in the University of Florida. And uh, I also actually did, no, I'm sorry. No, that was white flies. I, silver leaf white fly did that for. So I did a white fly and I did a leaf miner for, with another group. And we were testing resistance to certain pesticides. And we, I had data from like multiple years and like one year, the leaf miner, and this, for one thing, this is not even congruent with the applications at the location in which I was um, uh, do, taking these samples. So regardless of what they were doing, one year, you know, you had a population that was like, that could sw- you know, not really, but they could practically swim in like cypermethrin <laughs> or or something like this. Or nice, uh, you know, yeah. But like and like they were like 600 times the resistance like uh, level like um, to one of these compounds. And then the next year, nothing. Like it was super susceptible wow. or 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 barely, or only a little bit resistant. Um, with the white flies, uh, all of them were Q biotype. Which we now use a different terminology. Um, I think that's uh, Mediterranean one or or MEAD one or something like that. But um, you know the people track these biotypes for exactly that reason. They have resistances and they have adaptations that make them more difficult to deal with. And of course, it's not easy to do that always. But um, on top of that, I guess like um, when we like this is how blight killed Mm -hmm. like hundreds of millions of chestnuts in North America because somebody brought, and we know very well now, somebody brought chestnuts from China and uh, they brought them over. And, you know, on set, it's simply no problem, right? But they had this fungus and even the Chinese chestnuts have have trouble with the, with the blight, right? So even in their own location, they bring them here, they have no, they have no concept of this. They have no immune system pathways that are made for this particular pathogen and it just wipes them out. Yeah. And we're still dealing with the travesty. People talk about regenerating the land and I'm a supporter of regenerative agriculture, you know, generally speaking, but, um, you know, earth, earthworms aren't even from here in <laughs> North America, Yeah. you know, good luck, good luck trying to reverse some of these, um, uh, colonization yeah against uh, right
0: yep no absolutely um, yeah the the chestnut issue was something uh, that we studied a lot in my mycology class when I was in college because I was in Mississippi at the time so you know being in the east um, is directly applicable and it's 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 wild I mean scientists are still trying to figure out how to save um, these American chestnuts and they can often um, you know, kind of get them to grow for a little while, you know, it's like get them to grow a little while longer before they uh, get taken out again. And you'll see stumps too, of these chestnuts, um, you know, that have died off, fallen over and died off and everything. And they'll try to grow, you know, and then um, they get wiped out again, just over and over and over again. Um, And it, but it makes you wonder though, you know, will we see at some point a change where all of a sudden um some subgroup of these chestnuts or something start to be able to show some resistance but it, to my knowledge so far that has uh, not happened and it takes a lot longer uh oftentimes especially in trees um than it would in like a, a forb or something like that um you know an annual plant or something um but yeah it's it's fascinating and it's also fascinating to think about like all of these dynamics that are going on they're so uh, one of the papers that you sent that I I was talking to you before that uh, just really got my brain spinning that I found was really fascinating was the differences in the kind of molecular signaling pathways that happen between an insect that is a um a chewer versus a sucker you know something mm-hmm. that's just nibbling on you know on the leaf tissue versus something that is piercing through and, and trying to, you know, suck out sugars and things, um, from the, um, you know, from the phloem or, um, other parts of the plant. Um, and something in particular that I found super interesting that I wanted to mention was, um, there's an effect that I hadn't appreciated as much until I read one of these papers that you sent me, um, of how, for instance uh chewing insects tend to be associated with these um like jasmonic acid uh, pathways and sucking insects are more associated with these salicylic acid pathways but once one of these insects attacks the plant initiates um, a defense response and then they leave let's say they they get what they want and they fly away whatever Um, It changes the entire, um, you know, molecular ecosystem that's going on in that plant and the pathways that have been initiated and everything so that other insects that may be totally different insects from the ones that fed before um, that come at a different uh, time um, and possibly even a a different place, um, that they can be set up to uh, then be able to have a better chance at uh, feeding on that plant later or the opposite. Um, we tend to think about the opposite more that, you know, Oh, when a plant gets stressed, it's immune response gets going. And then other, you know, insects maybe will have a harder time. Um, but I liked that this, this paper really highlighted that like, no, it, it's not like a one-way street. Like this can go in very different directions and you could have some chewing insect that attacks the plant that then makes it easier for sucking insects to then come in and vice versa. Um, and I that just really excited me because there's so many things to think about. And that's just looking at jasmonic acid and salicylic acid and and those signaling pathways. Um, and there's obviously more than that. Um, but I just wanted to to bring the conversation around on that because I just thought that was... Fascinating to look at, and how depending on how an insect is attacking the plant, you know what pathways are being triggered, and then how does that set up the the future for other pests that may um, attack that plant later? And one of the things I think about in the context of cannabis is you would you would likely have some of these kind of sucking insects attack earlier on. I guess depending on what you're thinking about. Um, but then it's you know caterpillars and things are notorious for attacking uh plants when they're you know in flower and everything like that so it made me think about like how would an aphid infestation or something affect a plant even if you were able to get the aphids off and treat it and everything and move on how's that going to affect possible attacks from caterpillars and other things um, down the line and then thinking about just the molecular biology involved in that is just super super fascinating
1: yeah the um you know it, the thing is, is that like for example with spider mites um like we were talking about before some populations what we find is that like an uh an emerging population on a plant that's not adapted to will um usually the, the, the aspect of its genome or the fact the parts that are important for this sort of, uh, feeding, they usually focus on the suppressing of the immune system mm-hmm. locally and right. also globally. Um, uh, and you know, I, I, I like to mention with this, uh, whenever I talk about this, I like to think of like venom, venom and how venom evolved in a lot of animals is very similar where, um, aspects of the physiology of the organism get acceptated mm-hmm. to this other um, sort of effect. So like it becomes weaponized essentially. So like um, with aphids, pretty commonly with a lot of model aphid organisms, we see there's this protein called MIF-1 and uh, it interferes with cytokinin um, production and, tra- and signaling. And it actually uh, is thought to be important for Resistance to parasitoid wasps hmm. that when they inject their egg into the aphid, these proteins um, they really mess up the development of the larva ah. and ki- and kill it. And I think the the aphid probably still dies. It probably sustains too much damage still, but
0: it possibly you know, protects have this... others.
1: Absolutely, yeah. that 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 wasp now does not uh, come out of the body. Um, and so, and that would have been like many other aphids, right? So, yeah. um, these MIF proteins then get weaponized to interfere with the cytokinin production in their plant host and suppress and suppress or or disrupt the the uh, immune system. And so that is kind of how venom works, right? Like the really bad ones that like block your ion channels in your blood, mm-hmm. you know, in your body and your muscles, and you seize up or you can't breathe you know, that's a big deal, but really they're just using, they're exploiting pathways that that they're totally natural normal in your body, but they're just cranking it up a little bit in one direction or another direction, or they make it antagonistic. Cause like, um, with plants, for example, immune system priming, you know, I think there's a lot of benefit there certainly. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that, um, it's very easy to just say immune system priming. That's very vague. That means nothing without any details. Um, But what's actually happening is a plant and people who are curious can look this up. This is um, you can look up signal ecology. Uh, There's a lot of literature about um, specifically with plants called the plant growth um, or or, or I guess you could say the growth defense hypothesis or Mm -hmm. or theory. Mm -hmm. The idea there's this sort of finite resources um, available to the plant for metabolism and secondary metabolism and that pool goes to of course microbes in the soil. people love to talk about well those symbioses have a cost yeah and those costs that cost is sucrose a lot of times usually in the form of hexose for like mycorrhiza. Um, there's a cost to mitigating these uh, mutualisms because you better believe that the plant's immune system is actually active Mm -hmm. uh, because some of the symbionts are actually bypassing or in some cases like changing the genetic expression of the plant locally in order to be able to colonize not necessarily a consensual relationship not necessarily Mm -hmm. a hunky-dory uh you know (laughs) uh, you know nice sort of environment there's there's a there's a there's a tug of war going on that I think people fail to recognize. Um, and so so certainly I've kind of gone on a tangent there, but it, I, to bring it back to the spider mite evaluation example, these spider mites, when they're on unfamiliar plants, often suppress the immune system because it's usually a better deal. It's most likely going to work Yeah. because uh, they feed on so many different plants. But as they adapt to the plant, a lot of spider mites will actually move to a defense elicitation um, strategy, which is counterintuitive, yeah. except that um, when you realize that spider mites are so good at detoxifying a vast you know, swath of plant uh, defenses. Uh, this is great because it actually elicits the plant to uh, cross antagonize itself and also antagonize other parasites of the plant that will compete with the spider mite for those hosts' resources. So the plant actually upregulates a ton of different immune signals and even like interferes with its own immune signals, kind of like how venom will interfere Mm -hmm. with your sodium ion channels potentially and and kill you. Um, And and so this doesn't kill the plant necessarily, but it does really um, uh, uh, knacker the uh, the plant's um, normal functioning. And what are those things that are happening? Well, like for example um you know maybe it causes the plant to grow more stout or maybe it puts Mm -hmm. more energy into creating more durable stems or you know there's shorter internodal length like i was saying earlier or um you know aspects of the leaf physiology might change with cannabis this is of course the case um that these kind of reactions can happen but like it's not magic there's a mechanistic reaction that's happening and it can't do both things at once. It cannot, for example, uh plants have a response to shading. Yep. Right? A plant cannot uh make its itself I mean, maybe if it gets really good at it, maybe this is the resistance trait, right? But a lot of times it's very hard to like make yourself super durable, but also grow really fast and not be yeah. outshaded <laughs> yeah. but also Deal with the phloem feeder over here, but also deal with the symbionts in my roots. Oh, you better not be <laughs> over-colonizing the roots, yeah. you know. There's a lot of things that are happening at once, and plants can't just run away from it. So they've adapted to be really good at sensing these signals, using them as proxies. But, of course, um, it's not a panacea.
0: No, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's like the, you can't, the plants can't have their cake and eat it, too. Um And one thing that uh, I thought was a a nice thing that was pointed out in one of these papers that, you know, it said that if a plant were to be genetically modified in a way or whatever to um, be less susceptible to pest pressure, that tends to also drive the plant to not be a favorable crop in the first place, because you start to, like you said, you may have hardier stems. Well, if you're dealing with a crop where you actually don't want those stems to be so huge and thick or, you know, whatever, for any reason that becomes a problem. If the adaptations start to drive, uh, floral structures, for instance, to change, which is particularly important for cannabis, um, you know, that may not be favorable. You know, uh, you may see, uh, what people often call larfier buds or air, you know, airy buds and, and, and things like that um and so it's important when people are thinking about these issues and they may be thinking like oh I want a plant that's resistant to all of these things and you know that's really going to withstand all of this pest pressure you know obviously to a degree yes you you don't want a plant that has no defense that's going to just get wiped out by anything that comes along but you know it's a fine balance um and I don't think most people actually really want plants that are just totally resistant. I mean, for multiple reasons, we won't even get into the, like the ecological reasons why you wouldn't want that. But even just from the anthropomorphic, anthropocentric, you know, view of just what can I do with this plant and this crop, you don't necessarily want plants that have adapted, you know, extreme defenses. And then even just in a the human body, you know, situation, you think about it when. When the human body's immune system overreacts, what happens? Well, if it gets bad enough, you have sepsis and you can die, you know. <laughs> and so it's always important that your immune system is actually not working at its full capacity and that it's, you know, ideally locally responding to issues as they arise with just as just enough, you know, uh, yeah. attention. Um, and so it's it's just funny to think about, you know, that you know, like what would a totally resistant plant be like, and would anyone even want to grow that plant? Um, probably not.
1: Yeah, I, you reminded me about domestication traits, right? In crop plants, like these plants did not evolve. <laughs> so except for very recently yeah uh to have certain traits that we we prize right like a thin peel for the fruit
0: yeah yep or yep. Um, That's a good example being able
1: to or like you brought up a really great example with um you know bud structure we want a dense dank uh flower structure but dense and dank are great for fungi <laughs> yeah right so you are literally asking for sort of an incongruous thing and there's a couple of philosophers who might ask you to you know consider that for a moment and ponder that uh you can ask for a car but you can't ask to not have traffic you know you know, (laughs) yeah (laughs) right like um you know it's it's sort of like uh or or you have to make a lot of modifications to how you use that car perhaps but like you know there are some fundamental um consequences of these of, of these effects and uh you also reminded me that um the immune system of plants, um, well, I guess I should say it like this: they're 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 very complicated. They um, they have to respond to all these different signals, and also a lot of these pathogens, especially, but also insects, much like the venom example, they are exploiting. So, they're exploiting physiology that already exists. And they're oftentimes exploiting pathways that their mutualists use too.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: I don't know if I brought it up last time we spoke, but mildew locus O uh, is well known. It's been known for almost like a hundred years in plants um, for a susceptibility to like powdery mildew and other fungi. And people ask this question, why is it that plants, many plants, uh, you know, even ones that are disparately related, why do they have this, why do they retain this gene or mm-hmm. this family of genes? Um, well, it turns out that um, it helps them uh, communicate with mutualists like Mycorrhiza yeah. and other, other beneficials like that. But unfortunately, powdery mildews, botrytis, and other pathogenic fungi um, have like, developed um, through those same exploitations. Yeah. And so the plant doesn't know the difference. You know the plant is just res- responding. The cells are responding to these molecular signals, to like in some cases mechanical pressure, which is what some of these susceptibility genes, actually MLO genes, I should say, um, are reacting to. So the 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 like I said earlier, the mycorrhiza that just pushes through the cell, and the and the plants <laughs> adapted to like be okay with that. Is also being okay with the the powdery mildew penetrating through the yeah. epidermis. Right, it's not the exact same system. Yep, but but these genes, when you eliminate them, you get rid of those susceptibility genes. Boom, uh, you've got very robust resistance or immunity even to powdery mildew, but also to mycorrhiza. Um, so that's an important thing to consider, right?
0: Well, and yeah, and it it makes you wonder too, and this highlights there's just so much research I'd like to see done and hopefully one day I I get a chance to do some of it because ecological and microbiological research is really fun Um, but you know uh, cannabis plants that have my brain spin, and there's two prongs to this that I want to try to include here one side note I'll make there's a relationship between powdery mildew susceptibility and cannabinoid synthase genes um, that's mm-hmm. interesting and not quite understood yet, but medicinal genomics has shown some relationships between um, those genes. As you drive THC concentrations up, you tend to see more susceptibility to powdery mildew, um, at least in certain populations of plants. Um, but it also makes me wonder you know, there's again such a desire, particularly in the you know, kind of regenerative agriculture community of which I consider myself part of um, to engage in mycorrhizal fungi, you know, particularly arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi and stuff. And, um, and it, it makes you wonder if you have plants that are very resistant to powdery mildew, cannabis plants that are very resistant to powdery mildew, then how effective are those inoculants that you might be using and um, that sort of thing because of of those trade-offs that like well if it's very resistant to fungus growing above ground it's also going to be more likely be more resistant to fungus fungal interactions below ground as well um and so it's just one of those things of like i it'd be nice to know um this relates to our first conversation we had but like are people wasting money at times Mm. on you know some of these mycorrhizal inoculants and things how how much effect are they actually providing to these plants depending on uh, their environment and their you know, their uh, genes and everything, how susceptible they are to these things? Um, it's yeah, it, it leads to a, a lot of interesting questions and something I want to make sure to come around to because we've only got about 10 minutes left, but I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned these interactions. One of the things that is often sacrificed is sucrose, and so this provides a great gateway to talk about bricks because there's, uh, I, I would say, funny. Uh, we mentioned before it's it's only funny because otherwise it would be very sad. Um, but there's an interesting meme idea floating around out in the world that. Uh, particularly with cannabis plants, but I've seen it crop up about other plants too, that if you can get a plant healthy enough, and by healthy, I put that in in quotes, um, we mean like a certain uh, sugar concentration um, within that plant, that pests will not be able to feed on that plant or they'll be dissuaded from feeding on that plant. And particularly... This is uh, related to aphids, or maybe I should just say sucking insects in general. But usually, it's mentioned in the context of aphids. Um, and I've I've seen that you've over the last several months, really over the last like six months to a year, you've been trying to track down, like where does this idea come from that if you've got the right, you know, bricks count. Which for anyone that is listening that doesn't know what bricks is, it's just a it's a way of describing the sucrose concentration in water um, and it's usually measured in degrees or percents depending on what scale you're using. there's like two different ways to calculate it. But, um, and if you've, uh, I'm trying to remember if I had this right, if you have like a one degree bricks that's like one gram in a hundred gram solution, aqueous solution. Yeah. Um, So do you mind just sharing a little bit about, this idea, I don't know if I've um, summarized it well, but can you talk a little bit about this idea, this meme that's been circulating and sort of your journey to try to understand where it's come from and what it's scientific basis may be, if any, and kind of where you're at in that kind of interesting journey. Cause I've been following every post you've made about it. I've paid attention to because it's something I've thought about and wondered, um, you know, it, cause it, it didn't, from my limited understanding of things that didn't didn't make a ton of sense um but there are people out there that said well, i've done this experiment and that experiment and it definitely holds up so uh where are you at with that idea
1: you summarize it really well uh yeah so bricks is the concentration of sugars and i guess depending on who you're talking to other things too but by mass right right um so this is also a really great reason why I think understanding these sort of physiological, you know, backgrounds, these sort of reasons why things happen the way they do, not just on the face of it, but also more deep dived, because if you knew these things, certain aspects of plant physiology or even insect physiology or pathogen physiology, know your enemy, then some of these claims maybe don't make very much sense. Um, So like, I'll just say it like this. So like, for example, if we have this idea that like the bricks level in a plant is high, let's say like 13% bricks, or, or whatever, 21% bricks or something like that. So 21% sugar by mass mm-hmm. in whatever the sample is that you're taking. Well, for one thing, bricks levels change really very frequently because photosynthesis happens, photosynthesis is produced. And it moves from sources to sinks. Sometimes yeah. those sinks are fruit, right? A lot of sugar and fruits, a lot of times, also into the roots where they are great for the microbes and things like that. Yeah. So, where you take your sample is, of course, going to really influence that. And if you're dealing with C3 plants, um, Brix level does not uh, remain the same at nighttime. Right. Photosynthesis isn't happening. So, again, you know, um, you would expect to see many more insects at nighttime, maybe, and then less of them during the day, perhaps, if that was actually the case. Because this is definitely the case, right? That breaks does change quite yeah. a bit. Um, so, and also, um, the idea that, in the, the, so there's different versions of this meme. I've heard examples where people are saying that the actual sugar content is itself uh, toxic um, that insects lack the organs or physiology to process the sugars. Um, infamously, I've heard the phrase, um, insects don't have a pancreas. They can't digest sugar, which is um, absurd. (laughs) Insects have been digesting sugar since before there were mammals on earth. Um, but they don't have a pancreas. That's That's true. true. They don't have a pancreas. that. (laughs) That is true. That is true. Um, but they do—they uh, do have other ways of doing that—that um, that process, and they definitely have the enzymes. Uh, there's various research that you can ta- you can take a look at, and in those videos on my channel, I do uh, cite those sources and I highlight the text and um, and the diagrams that show uh, insects' abilities for breaking down sugars and toxins and all kinds of other things. And we actually just talked about a lot of that too, with spider mites and yeah. things. So the, um, so that's one example. Uh, another example is that, well, it's not the sugar that's toxic. It's that the sugars are the resource that the plant uses to make defense compounds. Now that's a lot more believable. It's a lot more plausible of a, of a scenario, Mm -hmm. but that's also still not like, you can't call it a panacea because it doesn't really matter if the plant has defensive toxins or, or other compounds if the organism is adapted to them and has countermeasures through your countermeasures right you can make an impenetrable door but if the hinges aren't impenetrable yeah and you have to destroy the hinges then doesn't really matter uh famously there are several pathogens that will just including powdered mildew um they'll just they'll just move right through the stomata yeah um this massive opening where where water evaporates out. It looks of, like a little yeah, mouth. They'll just, <laughs> yeah. They'll just, they'll either secrete a compound that makes it open up. Yeah. Uh, like in the case of uh, Pseudomonas syringi in tomatoes, or uh powdery mildew would just uh, put the typhal, uh you know, root, you just know, plug you it in. It that, you know, just plug it right in. There's <laughs> no problem. Right down through the epidermis. Yeah. Um, so there are countermeasures and they're not always even like uh, super sophisticated uh metabolically or whatever but then there's also this thing with insects that um you know the idea that they don't like sugar because insects like we said earlier especially they're the first animals um or at least i've said it recently actually i should say that they're the first animals to have powered flight Mm -hmm. this allowed them to travel quite a quite a great distance um at a time when other animals didn't have this capability
0: especially in relation to their
1: size yeah exactly right exactly and and um so insects power their metabolism with sugars uh they've been powering this metabolism since before they were insects when you know their ancestors are aquatic yeah so are plants for that matter um and so they were trehalose is the insect quote unquote or the arthropod the most common sort of blood sugar although they don't have blood like we do um and uh, they take the sucrose, commonly sucrose, in plant sugar in plant phloem or sap. And then they take those sugars, the sucrose, and they break that down. And then they uh, oftentimes in fat cells, uh, they will turn this into trehalose. Mm-hmm. And trehalose is a different kind of sugar, which is great because unlike glucose or sucrose, um, it is a non-reducing sugar. And uh, it will... You can store a ton of it without having a lot of osmotic pressure. So like some people have said that aphids will shrivel, uh, due to basically what this is, osmotic stress that would kind of create a hypertonic situation, kind of like when you put too much salt around a cell yeah. and, it, <laughs> and it crumples, um, or it bursts depending on how much water or whatever that homeostasis is lost, but they, they break it down with enzymes and they're very, very good at doing this, um. So if they didn't have this capability, that's absolutely what would happen. But trehalose uh, allows them to sort of store a bunch of these sugars. And then what they do is a lot of times the sugar is, is used to power their flight. Flight mm. is super energy intensive. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're small. Yeah, they're light. A lot of them can even float on the air. But it's all relative. Yeah, it is all relative. And they're a very small <laughs> yeah. organism. A very small unit, and they have to, you know, they have to fly, and they have to exert this lift force for them and carry their body great distances, oftentimes. And what happens is the trehalose gets broken down, and that is used to power that metabolic action. And so, when people tell me that they can't take sugars or that that it's toxic to them, it doesn't make any sense to me because there's no physiological evidence for this. In fact, there's tons of physiological evidence for the reverse um sugars are stimulant for aphids for example yeah uh they can't get enough of it
0: well and there's also uh it's also sort of presents i know that oftentimes insects get treated like you know little um and to an extent they kind of are little machines little robots kind mm. of um, even i've said that yeah which i mean it depends on how you look at it they they kind of are into a sense everything is Um, yes (laughs) (laughs) right um but uh, we also have to be careful of like how much we actually understand and i think there's sometimes this idea that um you know maybe if a, a plant has a ton of uh has a high bricks level so there's a lot of sugar there that it's just going to keep sucking and sucking and sucking until it like explodes or something, <laughs> you know, I don't know. And yeah, uh, and there is a, a self-regulating process. Like, it's not like, um, you know, they they take what they can get. But there is a certain point um, where they have to move on with their life cycle and do other things that they need to do. And there are mechanisms in place to provide these these feedback loops. So I yeah I don't know. and where have you tracked down any um like credible sources of where these these ideas have come from? Have people just been misinterpreting some research or something that just caught on and circulated and this idea just started to kind of take off and uh, as a follow up to that, have you like what have your direct observations been um, around this this area? I mean, Um, you've seen so many plants that have been attacked by aphids so um i'm sure you have some personal experience there um i also have questions about how the brix is measured tying back to uh, you know what you were saying of like it matters a lot of when and where on the plant you know you're measuring but also a lot of times brix is measured with these refractometers that uh I don't know. I need, and this is my own ignorance. Like I, I'm not familiar with how a lot of these cultivators are actually measuring their bricks. But I, I'm familiar with, re, you know, these refractometers, and they usually are designed to uh, work with liquids, and not. It, it becomes highly variable when you're trying to introduce other matrices uh, to them to try to get uh, data. And so, um, that's like three questions in one. Um, but I'll throw those out there of like, where where did this idea come from that you found? What have your direct observations been? And are you as skeptical about the the ways that these measurements are taken as I am?
1: So starting with the middle question, um, definitely. the. So my direct observation and also the research literature has looked into this because even since the mid-90s, and in my videos, I'd cite such research that literally looked at claims that people were making uh, in agricultural magazines from consultants, um, various people uh, who basically claimed exactly this idea. Um, and when they did the tests, they found that there was just no correlation. It wasn't like it was reverse, mm-hmm. but it was actually there was just anti—you know, yeah. not anti-correlated, but it was just no correlation, none um sometimes plants would have high breaks and low pests and sometimes they would have high breaks and more pests and mm-hmm. sometimes they would have you know so it doesn't seem to be very much of a re- relevance and in fact they noted that uh, after they published the research in the next uh, issue of that magazine they made a much more plausible point which is actually the second point that we made earlier which is that like it's not that it's toxic or will kill the, the sucking mouth part plants or uh, pests but that um but that they would be uh, a little bit more resistant or something like that. Mm -hmm. So not immunity or whatever. So there is issue because um, how you take your sample is incredibly important. And as you well know, um, that's very, very important. If you, you know, especially with something like this. So if you take it at a different part of the plant, it's going to be different. In fact, like you mentioned with insects and being like automatons, um, you know, if an insect is having trouble with like a toxin or something, a lot of them will just like they'll they'll drink less, mm-hmm. or if it's like a foam right. feeder, or they'll eat less, or they'll or they'll even do things like manipulate the physiology by like cutting into the the petioles, or maybe mm-hmm. they have some behavioral adaptations, like maybe they like to feed on the top of the plant because there's less toxins, right. or maybe they feed on the top of the plant because there's more toxins, and that's great because they sequester them in their body, you know, and that's yeah. a, a that's important for them, um, so. When you're taking those samples, I think they're kind of it's very difficult to sort of get a standardization. And a lot of times people will like uh they will liquefy the like a leaf or several mm-hmm. leaves or something like this. Uh and then that liquid, you know, milu is used as a as a sample. And then they, they use the refractometer, meter. Um and I think that there's some issues with that, obviously, if you're talking about the entire plant. Right. Um, you know, the map is not the terrain, so to speak. Um and then where this comes from, you know, I'm not sure, but I'll tell you one thing. What I originally thought might be the case was that people were hawking refractometers that like somebody has stock in the refractometer, <laughs> uh, you know, market. Yeah. But that does not seem to be the case. It does seem to be from what I can tell uh, ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it partly comes from people just not understanding the arcana of like, Plant biology and insect biology, which is understandable, right? Right, uh, very understandable. Um, and then also, uh, I think that some, like I, I've seen a lot of um, sort of cross interaction with, like, are you familiar with an idea called like a like vitalism? I
0: mm-hmm. never
1: yeah. heard of it? Yeah, this sort of idea, like you're saying, like. Similar claims are made about people, yeah. right? If you're healthy enough, you won't get any pathogens or pests. Mm-hmm. If you have, if you have good vibes, man, um, you know. Yep. That's, okay, you if know. You stop if calling you,
0: all this negative energy to you, then you'll be fine.
1: Yeah, if you eat the right foods, and certainly to some degree, I have to agree. Right. Um, if you eat the right foods, if you are getting nutrients, um, if you're getting these things that are important for your own physiology. Like, of course, that's going to make you more, um, you know, more defended, better, better stocked for yeah. for this sort of metabolic response. But certainly people have, and so do plants, genetic differences. Sometimes you have a yeah. mutation here. And unfortunately, that mutation means that you don't even reach past the fetal stage and you, you die before becoming born. Yeah. Sometimes what happens is you have seborrheic dermatitis and, um, you know, it has not a whole lot of problems, but if you live in a desert or you live in a, a certain other location, maybe you have more skin issues, you know, there's all yeah. of these contexts and you can't help, but have differences between individuals and also insects and also pathogens. When we do, when we do tests for pathogens and try to see if a pathogen can cross to another, another plant, you know, we have to make sure that that strain is virulent, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it suck if you <laughs> tested a hypo, a hypo strain, Um and you're like, oh, it didn't work. Looks like it doesn't affect cannabis. And in fact, you had made the mistake of using the wrong thing. Yeah. You know. Um, so like, yeah, there's just a lot of nuance there. And I think that it comes from this sort of this sort of ideology that um if you just have enough health Mm -hmm. uh uh I don't know what you call it, units or it right? Sort of exactly.
0: Like, like how do you? Yeah. How do you? What is that quality? We quantify
1: health. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Which I mean, that is a big philosophical question that applies to, you know, uh, that affects us every day. Uh, what does it mean to be healthy, and do we have enough data even to answer that question? Uh, I think you, you pointed out a really important point too that, you know, you could have a seemingly very healthy plant. Or person and it can be um, attacked by either a pest or a pathogen virus or bacteria or whatever and it can that can cause genetic changes it could flip the epigenetic switch so to speak there's a number of different mm-hmm. things that can happen where all of a sudden that perfectly healthy plant now can't produce a certain protein the same way that it used to be able to and now you know, it's become more susceptible to further attack, um, and that sort of thing. And so it's, it's, uh, important not to, uh, hang this idea of health, plant health on, you know, any particular variable, whether it be sugar content or what we know about secondary metabolites, the Terps, bro, all of these things, um, if if you don't have a good understanding of the genes there's still a ton of opportunity for things to go wrong um and that just all that means is just that we all just have to continue to learn more and pay attention that's why observation is so important like not to just assume that you understand something to the point that you no longer have to pay attention anymore um and you know to bring this all back around to integrated pest management i mean that's one of the the big tenets of integrated pest management you must observe you must pay attention um and then respond accordingly you know within this kind of hierarchy of interventions to um to try to affect those dynamics in um so that's that's one reason why I wanted to to bring that up, because I felt like that highlights so many important lessons um, around integrated pest management that, um, you know, hopefully as we continue to talk in more conversations, we'll start to highlight more and more of these examples. You brought up several through this conversation that I thought were really good um, that just point out why we're never done learning, which, of course, for me is that's that's my theme song lifelong learning is, is like as much as I've studied plants and uh biochemistry and stuff for I don't know the past decade or so I still feel like I know hardly anything and like these papers you sent me I'm like oh this is stuff I think I haven't really spent much brain juice on processing so you know this is even more to add and so um for folks listening that may be cultivators or whatever, just, uh, try to resist the temptation to think that, um, uh, that we understand it all because there's still so much more to learn. Um, and then that, that certainly keeps it interesting. Um, and it makes me very fascinated for the future of, for instance, uh, genomic testing for plants as a, uh, uh, kind of preemptive thing for cultivators, you know. Right now, particularly in the cannabis space, when we think about genomic testing, we're like, well, sex testing and you know stuff like that mm. is is generally how it's used. But in the future, as we start to understand, you know, I mentioned the relationship between powdery mildew susceptibility and and the uh, cannabinoid syntheses. That's one small example. But as we learn more and more and more, we may be able to eventually screen plants and say, like, okay, this plant. Is good, but if it gets hit by russet mites, then it's going to completely, you know, have no chance at all. This plant over here, based on what we can see in its genes, it may have, a, you know, a stronger ability because essentially the light switch is not as weak as in this plant. And so we don't expect there to be as severe epigenetic changes for um, things that go on. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that gets me really excited. those links between genomics, molecular biology, and ecology um bridging mm. all of those worlds together um We still have a ways to go, but um it just excites me so much um and I'm really, really stoked that you sent me these papers so that I have a lot to chew on over the next month or two um, uh, so that I can learn more about all of this as well.
1: We're kindred spirits then, because honestly, like very much like you say, like uh, the last five decades or more um, uh, with regards to integrated pest management should be the lesson to take away that we always are going to have various contexts to deal with. It's all contextual, which yes. is the cop-out answer. It's all, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's true. It's
0: all relative. It's definitely dudes.
1: true. All strategy, right. You know, there's no one, one size fits all strategy for everything. Um, if it was, you'd think that the plants would have evolved that already. Um, and then like, kind of like you were saying about, uh, some of the sort of the issues with certain interpretations about health, like for example, you know, um, context like age Mm -hmm. of the plant the genotype of the plant people talk about genetically modified organisms even for example and how you know whether somebody supports them or not i'll tell you what they're not at least how we use them super robust because you uh you put a gene that produces a toxin for an insect and maybe it works for like six months or a year but they're already showing resistance to those modified organisms even so you know it's not robust even Very rarely is one or two resistance genes or traits or whatever uh, you want to say, however you want to quantify that, very rarely is that going to be persistent, right? Um, Because as as it happened in nature, there's a selection pressure, and so you're always making selection pressures. Whatever you're doing is going to create some sort of a selection pressure. Can you make a plant that's so healthy it never ages and never (laughs) dies? Is that right. natural? Is
0: there a, is there the a same, fountain will, of youth for plants?
1: Yeah. Well, like, well, I mean, if people are making the, the point that you can just make the plant so healthy that nothing can affect mm-hmm. it, well, does it live forever and is it immortal? Right. Um, ostensibly not. So, yeah. So And don't take what I say as canon. Don't, don't take my word for it. Anyone who's hearing this should look up the research themselves. Um, they can contact me as well. Um, and I'm happy to show, uh, share resources and that sort of a thing. And I do welcome discussion and dialogue on this subject because ultimately, I think it'll it'll rise all our ships together.
0: Absolutely, and you know those kinds of discussions. I know for me, I I always love when people have any sort of feedback because it almost inevitably, at least, makes you think about possibly a question that you hadn't considered or a perspective on a question that wasn't so obvious. And for folks listening, because they've heard me mention like some of these papers that um, we were kind of looking into before the talk, I'll just mention some of the names of them for people listening that might want to look them up. One of them is uh, from 2018, and it's called Interactions Between Plant Defense Signaling Pathways, Evidence from Bioassays with Insect Herbivores and Plant Pathogens. Um, Another one here is from 2014 um i think this one might be i don't know if this is a chapter maybe it's just a paper but anyway 2014 um susceptibility genes 101 how to be a good host um super super interesting um and it, yeah man and just realizing like i wish we had three more hours uh then <laughs> uh the other one the main one that we were looking at here is from 2015 called genomics of adaptation to host plants in herbivorous insects um i'll also try to remember um i'm really bad about this because i forget by the time i'm writing up the episode descriptions and stuff but i i remember i'll try to also include the uh references to these papers in the episode descriptions so that folks can hunt them down as well um and also to anyone listening, if you happen to be on the Discord, um, Matthew's also in our Curious About Cannabis Discord. Um, you can always reach out with questions about episodes um, directly to both of us um, on there. And I definitely encourage that kind of thing. Um, any sort of uh, feedback and questions uh, from listeners on any of the stuff, it'll just help us uh, think more critically about what we're saying and what we're sharing. And we'll ultimately, like like Matthew just said, uh it'll raise all ships and make us all better for it so yeah definitely reach out with any questions feedback and um again like i said i know this won't be the last time we talk um so um, we'll pick up the conversation soon but matthew thanks so much for coming on again it was a pleasure as always the hour and we went for almost an hour and a half but it just like disappeared so quickly um so i really appreciate your time and energy and again thanks so much for your work and you know, not just trying to educate people about these topics, but also trying to uh, be an example of uh, a certain level of dedication to the scientific method and critical thinking, and um, just trying to be careful about the assumptions we may make about um, information we're presented with. Um, I think that's extremely important and valuable. So thanks so much for everything you do.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I have to agree that the time went very quickly and I look forward to our mutual success and I look forward to more conversations in this vein and in other veins.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, man, if we were to spin off into, um, we need to do an episode one day just about like regenerative agriculture, because there's a lot to dive into uh, philosophically, um, Mm. just into that. But um, yeah, Thanks so much and everyone listening. Thanks so much for listening. Um stoked to be back recording episodes again after our little six month break there um, between 2021 and 2022. So um, it's really, really nice to be back and I appreciate you all joining me and listening in again. So with that, everybody, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you're curious about cannabis like me then get connected to the curious about cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together visit cacpodcast.com connect to join our learning community on our discord server and you can participate in regular giveaways dive into the latest cannabis research connect with certified curious about cannabis educators hang out in our break room with other curious minds and more best of all it's totally free Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.